0: You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Well, it doesn't really matter if you're five years old or you're 105 years old. I think virtually everyone has an idea of how the world could be a better place. And it could be technology. You heard a lot of ideas, you know, there Technology, racial equality, income equality, good weather, no guns, not so sure about that. Listening more, more patience, less fear, world peace, democracy, lower gas prices, getting the dinosaurs back. I don't know if you caught that at the end by the seven-year-old. All those things could be good things. I'm not so sure about the dinosaurs, but those would all be good things, right? If you were asked that question, how would you change the world? I think more than anything else, people want their lives to have significance, right? Don't you all want your life to count for something bigger than yourself? I mean, we, we want to have an impact on the world that we live in. And, and that desire for significance, I believe, surfaces in different ways. It sounds a little morbid, but have you ever found yourself kind of looking forward and kind of thinking about what is your funeral going to look like? No. Well, I know I have. And sometimes people start thinking, what are they going to say about me? You know, what are they going to say about me at my funeral? Will my life really be remembered? Do you ever wonder why not having the significance in their life? Have you ever found yourself frustrated in a job that you felt just was going nowhere, where you weren't having an impact like you thought you would with your life? Have you ever felt compelled to protest for a cause that you believe in? like we saw this week in the streets of the cities around the country? I mean, have you been inspired by people like Martin Luther King and by Nelson Mandela and Gandhi and Abraham Lincoln and Muhammad Ali and Cesar Chavez, and the name, you know, names go on and on? But those are people that are inspiring to many. Some of them started movements that really did change the world. And there have been movies that have been made about these people's lives because they inspire us. And while I think there, there certainly are a lot of people that have had impact throughout history, there's really one man that towers above all the others. And he started the movement 2,000 years ago in Israel, and you know who I'm talking about. It's Jesus of Nazareth. You know, Jesus was amazing because his movement, really the growth of the Jesus movement, was nothing short of extraordinary. The 400 years, went from this small little Jewish sect to the official religion of the Roman Empire, displacing paganism as the official Roman religion. And the Jesus movement really attracted all walks of life, whether you were rich or poor, whether you were a Roman citizen or you were a slave, a Jew or a Gentile, it went across all stratas of society. In the book of Acts, those of you that have read Acts know that it's the account of the first century church. And in Acts 2, you see records that 3,000 people were baptized into Jesus the very first day that Peter started preaching the good news about Jesus. So Jesus' plan did literally transform the ancient world because it gave people meaning and purpose for their life. And Jesus can change our world today as well. So as, as we wind down 2016, it's hard to believe we're almost through already <laughs> and we're starting to look ahead to 2017, we're going to be spending the next several weeks on a new sermon series that we've entitled, How to Change the World. And we're going to explore how we can change the world by understanding and embracing Jesus' strategy. And in this series, we're going to see how Jesus can give you true meaning and purpose for your life. And those of you that have read the book, the Robert Coleman book, Master Plan of Evangelism, you'll see some of those concepts introduced in this series. It's not solely about that book, but... It's, uh, the sermon series is inspired by that book, if you've read it. But in Matthew chapter 28, there's a scripture that most of us have memorized. Uh, in verse 18, it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority and on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this is before Jesus was crucified, or after he was crucified, before he ascended to heaven, you know, he appears to his followers one more time. And in just a few sentences, he lays out his plan to change the world. And it's quite simple. He wants all nations to be what? His disciple, right? Right. And he wants them to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he wants them to learn to obey everything that he taught. You know, Jesus didn't need a detailed instruction manual to do this. It's pretty straightforward. His plan was to change the world one by one, soul by soul, person by person. But I believe that the Christian world, and I use Christian in quotes here, (laughs) the Christian world has largely lost touch with Jesus' plan. Very few people that you meet today are living as disciples of Jesus, at least as Jesus described his disciples. And and yet many people would still call themselves Christians or, or followers of Jesus. But but really, the Jesus movement today doesn't look anything like it did in the first cent in the first century. And in fact, Christianity today in the U.S. is actually on the decline. This is kind of a hard chart to read, but. You know, Pew Research Center does, does a periodic study of the religious landscape in the U.S. In 2007, almost 80% of the population that was surveyed considered themselves Christian. Seven years later, in 2014, that number had already dropped to about 70%. So a 10 percentage point drop almost in, ten, in seven years. So it's not a good trend line. And you can see the biggest drops, the red lines, are with Catholicism, and with the mainline Catholic, or excuse me, mainline Protestant denominations, or where the largest declines are happening, and there actually has been some, some increase in, in those that consider themselves Christians but are not affiliated with any particular denomination, such as the non-denominational movement that we're part of. But but on the surface, that the environment. Because our culture, our media, our education system have entrenched themselves against Jesus. We're told that the truth is relative to each individual. Everyone needs to find their own truth. Most importantly, we should keep our religious views private. We should not share our views with anyone else. Born-again Christians are genuinely viewed with scorn. Because we're, we're viewed as narrow-minded. We're viewed as hypocritical. And sometimes we've brought that on ourselves. But but if you study church history, you know this is not the first time that Christianity has faced major headwinds. In fact, the fastest growth of the early church actually happened during the times of greatest persecution. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Because when disciples are totally committed to Jesus and his mission, remarkable things happen. You know, there are no headwinds. There is no resistance. Nothing can stop his movement from advancing when you're really tapped into the power of God, the message of the cross. And that's really the only thing that's going to change our world today. Because you see, we we can solve global warming. We can solve for income equality. We can solve for racial equality. Those are all good things. We can get lower gas prices. We can even bring the dinosaurs back. (laughs) But if we don't change people's hearts, if we don't change people's hearts, we're not going to change the world. And Jesus knew that. And that's why his strategy works. But the master's plan requires you to set aside any of the religious traditions you may have, to set aside any of the, the baggage that you may have about God and about Jesus, and to really take a fresh, unbiased look at who he is. And we'll be doing that in this sermon series in the weeks to come. Today we're going to be drilling into the first two steps of Jesus' strategy, which is selection and association. So Jesus began his movement by selecting you know, a small group of men to follow him and then associated with them or spending time with them so that they could learn what he was all about. So selection and association and specifically on those topics we're going to be addressing three questions today. Number one, who is this Jesus who is calling you? Who is he that's calling you? What is he asking of you specifically and what is at stake? Who is calling you? What is he asking of you? What's at stake? Let's pray as we get started. God, we just thank you for the opportunity to get into your word, to look at your strategy, to look at what Jesus laid out as his plan. And Father, my prayer is that the scriptures speak to us, that the Holy Spirit uh, you know, speaks to us today, and that we come away with just renewed conviction about what you're trying to accomplish in this world, God, and how we should be part of that, and how you want us to be part of that movement. Help us to be inspired, help us to go away strengthened and encouraged. It's in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. The most powerful movement in the history of mankind started with three words, come follow me, come follow me. So Jesus personally selected 12 men and called them to follow him. And he staked his entire ministry on these men. And as these men became like Jesus, Jesus called them to go out and make more disciples because that's what disciples of Jesus do. They ask people to follow them as they follow Christ. But but why on earth would people in today's sophisticated, modern world follow some humble man that lived 2,000 years ago? Why would we answer the call to follow such a man? Who is this Jesus that calls you? You know, when it comes to Jesus, there are some major misconceptions about who he is. You know, another interesting study. I love studies, if you haven't noticed in my sermons. Um, Barna Group, pretty good research organization. They went out and they asked people, was Jesus a real person? Did he really live? Wide swath of society, and they found 92% of people said yes. Of adults said yes. We believe Jesus was a real man. A little lower with millennials, a little higher with, with the elderly population, but overall, people believe Jesus was a real guy that was, lived on earth. But the next question was was Jesus really the Son of God? Was he really divinity? Was he really God? And that's where the opinions begin to diverge quickly. <laughs> So the black section of each of those graphs is the people that say, yes, Jesus was God. So all adults, it's hard to read, but 56% of all adults believe that Jesus was really God. The remainder either think he was just a good teacher, or they, they just aren't sure who he was. But it's pretty, pretty interesting. It's lower with millennials. Even fewer millennials believe that Jesus was God. A little more on the elderly side, they believe more, more that Jesus was God. But overall, about half of our population doesn't even believe Jesus was God. So we've got a lot of work to do. (laughs) The Apostle John, open your Bibles to John 1. The Apostle John was was a disciple of Jesus who knew him from the very beginning of his ministry. And John was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was undoubtedly one of Jesus' closest friends, spent the most time with him. And let's just look at how Jesus' friend John describes Jesus and who Jesus is. In John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Read along with me. It says, in the beginning was the Word. And by the way, the Word is a reference for Jesus. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 9. we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Then verse 18, it says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. So in just a few phrases here, John makes some incredible statements about who Jesus really is. And John knew him better than probably anybody did. He said that Jesus is the word, which the Greek word that's used there is logos. Logos means wisdom or intelligence. So Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Jesus and God are one. Jesus made everything that has been made. Jesus is life. Jesus is grace and truth. And John says that the world did not know Jesus when he came, even though he made the world. The world didn't know him. But those who do receive him are given the right to be children of God. So, amazing claims about who this man is. So, imagine, just for the sake of discussion, that some mysterious man walked into our auditorium down the aisle here this morning, and he came up to the front and he asked to speak to our group. So, I just step aside and I give him the podium. And the mysterious man says just one sentence to you. He says, come follow me for the rest of your life and we will change the world together. Come follow me for the rest of your life. We will change the world together. And then he walks out the auditorium, out the door. How many of you would actually follow him? (laughs) I'll go out on a limb and suggest that you would be very, very unlikely to follow just anyone. You'd probably think he was off his rocker unless you had a ton of respect and reverence for who this person is, you'd be very unlikely to follow him. And Jesus is coming to you today with the same words that he used with the very first disciples, come follow me. And maybe Jesus is a stranger to you. (laughs) Maybe he's like an old buddy that you used to know, but you've lost touch with over the years. Either way, you're probably not going to follow him for the rest of your life unless you have deep respect and reverence for who he is. So, so John tells us right here, Jesus is the only son of God. He is the light. He is the life. He is the creator who was with God before the beginning of the world. And he is calling you personally. That is incredible when you think about it. The creator of the universe is calling you and just in case John's explanation of Jesus doesn't get your attention, you know, he said how God was, he was with God in the beginning. Jesus created everything that's been created. In Romans 1, it says that God's divine nature has been clearly seen through what he has made, so men have no excuse. So let's just drill into his creation for a minute. This summer at youth camp, we saw some indescribable images of the universe that God's made. And I'm interesting we sang the song indescribable today. That was from youth camp. But but personally, I just can't get enough of seeing the splendor of God's creation. Because it's just so amazing. And it's so obvious that there's a God. I'm going to hold something up here. You guys tell me if you can see it. Can you see this? Front row, can you see it? What is it? It's a dime. Okay, so it's a dime. So scientists recently combined... 10 years worth of space images from the Hubble Telescope. And the Hubble Telescope was pointed at a section of the universe that would be the equivalent of the size of a dime if you're 75 feet away. So if you're about midway through the auditorium, the Hubble Telescope was focused on a spot this size. Can you see it? Pretty small section of the universe. A dime from 75 feet away. I'm gonna show you the image that came back as they combined these 10 years worth of images. I wish we had it on the big screen, but you can kind of get an idea here. Those look like stars, don't they? But they're actually not stars. This is called the Hubble Extreme Deep Field Image. It's the deepest image of the universe ever made. And those dots are not stars, they're entire galaxies made up of billions of individual stars in each galaxy. And Jesus has created that we know of around 350 billion galaxies and he knows each of them by name. And that's a conservative estimate. So the creator of galaxies is calling you. Think about that. Now this next picture is a picture of the nucleus of our Milky Way. So this is our own galaxy where we live. And this is the center. So you can see in the center, there's a little bit of a black section there, a little bit of black movement. That's actually a black hole named Sagittarius A. And it's estimated that 4 million times the mass of our sun would fit inside of that black hole. So it's an enormous black hole right in the center of our universe. And scientists estimate in the Milky Way itself, there are 400 billion individual stars that they know of. So think about that. 350 billion galaxies times 400 billion stars. That's a lot of stars. And Jesus was there when each one of them was made at the Father's side. So the creator of immeasurable stars is calling you. One last little factoid that I thought was interesting. All the stars and the galaxies and the black holes of the universe only comprise about 5% of the mass of the universe. So as crazy as that sounds, the other 95% is unaccounted for. Scientists have decided to label that mystery material dark matter. And to this day, they are not sure where or what it is. But Jesus knows the other 95%. (laughs) So the one that baffles even the brightest scientists is calling you. The Son of God, the creator of the universe, was willing to give up his amazing position at the Father's side, and he willingly became a poor man on this little planet, and he left his Father's side, and he descended so low for one simple purpose, to demonstrate how much God loves you just listen to that and just try to take this in the eternal wisdom of God John calls it the creator of the universe loves you so much that he died to give you eternal life he died to give you the place beside the father that only he deserves and he took the place that you and I deserve on the cross because of our sin so are you inspired by him are you in awe of him do you really grasp the implication of who is calling you The creator of galaxies wants you to be with him forever. And he died to make that happen. Just let that thought consume you. Hebrews 2 says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Do you realize who's calling you? I mean, if Jesus could peel back the veneer of your three-dimensional reality and show you the entire picture of who he is and how much he loves you, you would drop to your knees in awestruck wonder. To hear the Son of God call you would feel like the most amazing honor and privilege that you could ever possibly receive. There is no higher calling. So do you realize who's calling you? Remember who's calling you. And once you acknowledge that, and once you remember that, and you, and you know that, then you have to ask, okay, the creator of the universe that's always been here is calling me. So what exactly does he want from me? Well, let's read on of what the Son of God did when he came to earth. In John 1, picking it up in verse 35. John 1, 35, it says, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and asked, do you, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of those two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, and you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said, follow me, Philip, like Landor and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote. We're echoing. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked, Come and see, said Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So something supernatural happened when these men spent time with Jesus. They came away with no doubt that he was the Son of God. And they were ready to tell the world about him. Even Nathaniel, who was the greatest skeptic of all, quickly came to faith in who Jesus really was. And what kind of men did Jesus choose here? Well, they were ordinary men. They were just working stiff. They were fishermen, most of them. They had little formal education... So their pedigree didn't really matter to Jesus. They they were teachable. They were willing to learn from Jesus. They called him teacher. They said, where are you staying? They wanted to learn from him. They were honest. And Nathaniel was like, Nazareth? They didn't hide their doubts or their fears about who Jesus was. And they had big hearts. And they ultimately learned to love Jesus deeply and to love people the way Jesus loved them. So they were ordinary. They were teachable. They they were honest, they had big hearts. And what does that mean for us? Well, I'll first address those of you that maybe aren't disciples yet, or you aren't sure if you're a disciple, and then I'll address those of you who are our disciples. So if you're not a disciple, first you may feel, first sometimes you feel like, hey, I'm not worthy to follow Jesus. I'm not worthy to follow the creator of the universe. Maybe you feel like you've just blown it too many times, and like God could not possibly be happy with you. And if that's how you feel, I urge you to reconsider. Because even Peter, you think about it, if you remember the story, when Peter was called, one of the gospel accounts says that Peter said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Because Peter was just in awe of how amazing Jesus was, and he saw how sinful he was. But it doesn't matter to Jesus who you are or how good or bad you are. What matters to him is your heart. And if you're humble enough to learn, and accept his truth. And your heart is revealed by your willingness to spend time with Jesus. And you may ask, well, how on earth would I spend time with a man who died 2,000 years ago? Well, you actually can. You can spend time with Jesus today. He's not here in the flesh, but he lives on through his disciples. And also through his word. And his disciples are those people who have his Holy Spirit. And then they're seeking to be like him. And the church is made up of disciples of Jesus. And the Bible goes so far as to call the church the body of Christ. So if you want to see Jesus, you need to see his church. The church isn't brick and mortar, it's flesh and blood. And so to know Jesus, you need to spend time with his disciples. Examine their lives. Go see where they live. Just like those fishermen did with Jesus. And when you spend time with disciples, what they're going to do is they're going to lead you to another way that you will get to know Jesus, which is through his word. If you're new to Christianity, you need to learn who Jesus is by studying the Bible. Any disciple in our church will sit down with you and show you in the scriptures who Jesus is, most importantly, what he did for you, and also what he expects from you. Those are the critical steps. Those are the critical first steps, anyway, to the master's plan. Spend time with Jesus, which means you spend time with his disciples and in his word. As for me, I mean, my story... 1998. I followed a disciple of Jesus to church, and her name was Mia Randolph. And I saw a faith in Mia that I had never seen before. I said, "Why did you move to California?" She said, "I did it for God." I'm like, what? I was intrigued, and so Mia invited me out. She's also very beautiful. So I followed her to church, and then Mia introduced me to some men who were disciples of Jesus. So George Violante, John Roscoe, Floyd Griffin—probably names that mean nothing to you. But these were men that I was introduced to, and they called me to come spend some time with them. And actually, I didn't believe they were for real at first. I'm like, why are these grown men so happy? Hugging each other? Seriously? I mean, I had to follow these guys for a while to really believe they were legit. And it's true, they were far from perfect. But I could see godly qualities in them that could only be from Jesus. They had a genuine love for one another. They had deep convictions. They... They were humble and honest about their lives and about their sin. And they were willing to deny themselves and sacrifice their time to help me understand who Jesus was. They studied the Bible with me over a several week period and they helped me come to faith in who Jesus was and to become a disciple of Jesus. So you become a disciple by following other disciples as they follow Christ and by studying his word. So that's if you're not a disciple. Now, if you are a disciple, let me address you now. Following Jesus does not end once you become a disciple. Once you come to faith in Jesus, you know, you're really just starting to follow him. Following Jesus is a lifelong journey. And as a disciple, you still need to spend time with other disciples who will help you to grow. And we call this discipleship in our church. We all need discipleship times, or we call them D times for short, with other disciples. These should be consistently scheduled times on the calendar where you grow by meeting with other disciples who point you back to the Bible and help you to learn to obey what Jesus commanded. So how are you doing in that area? I mean, do you have conviction that that's part of Jesus' plan? I mean, he expects you to learn to obey everything he commanded. We saw that in the scripture at the beginning. Everything. And there are some things that you just can't teach yourself. I can't teach myself to build a spacecraft that will fly to the moon and back. Although I looked at the moon, this last the moon, by the way, closest place it's been in, in, in our lifetime. It's really close to the earth right now. Steve, Bill has a telescope if you want to look through it and set it up. But anyway, I can't do that by myself. And when it comes to spiritual matters, I know I'm not going to teach myself to be more loving, for example. I'm not going to teach myself to be a better father or a better husband. I need all the help I can possibly get. Trust me, discipleship only comes from spending time with other disciples, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to fo- follow other godly men as they follow Christ. I, my best, one of my best friends in the world, Pat Toomey, he gently discipled me a while back because I was harsh with a brother, um, and I had to apologize. You know, Stephen Jackie Marici helped me and me with our parenting and our marriage. Praise God for that, and so many other people help us. I mean. I can't even begin to list them all. Don't, don't get me wrong, though. I mean, discipleship can never take the place of your personal walk with God. But, but true discipling should challenge you to have a deeper walk with God. And I appreciate David Blanco, for example. David and I get together regularly. He spurred me on a couple weeks ago that I need to get closer in my walk with God. I need to pray more specifically and get deeper with God. So listen carefully, disciples. If you're not consistently spending time in discipling relationships, you're missing a huge part of Jesus' plan. We can never stop learning to obey everything he commanded. And in case you haven't noticed, none of us has arrived yet. (laughs) Which leads me to my third and final point, what's at stake? In John 14, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to God. He's the only truth. He's the only way to eternal life. If that is true, if that is true, doesn't the entire world need to know that truth? Jesus is the only way that you or I or anyone else is going to make it to heaven. So the stakes are very, very high. But Satan has entrenched himself against that basic truth, and he will do anything to get people to not believe that truth about Jesus. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, and some of you have maybe read his book, The Screwtape Letters. It's a really interesting book. Uh, He gives a vivid account in that book about two demons that are corresponding with each other, and the older demon is teaching the younger demon on how to destroy Christians, And we see that Satan has an extensive playbook for distracting people from the truth. So let's just imagine for a moment, in the spirit of the screw tape letters, let's just imagine a moment, we get get an excerpt from Satan's playbook, and it's the top ten ways to foil Jesus' strategy. First thing is you get Christianity to feel weird. Okay, that's the first strategy. Get it to feel weird and uncomfortable and old-fashioned, especially for men. If we can get men to hate church, perfect. And millennials, too. Second thing you do is you get Christians to lower the standard of what it means to follow Jesus. I don't have to be a disciple, but I'm a Christian. Third thing you do is you get disciples to lose connection with Jesus, that daily walk with Jesus, so they forget about the Great Commission. The fourth thing you do as a demon is you get people to believe that every good person goes to heaven. doesn't matter how they live. You know what? They're all going to get there. There is no hell. Next thing you do as a demon is you get people to believe that there are a lot of ways to God. Coexist many ways to God. Jesus is not the only way. He's one way. Number six, continue. Get people to believe there are no absolutes. Morality is relative. Number seven, get people to believe they are not worthy. You're not worthy to be saved by Jesus. Number eight, you create a culture where talking about Jesus is taboo. You create scary HR rules about proselytizing at work. Make disciples afraid to share their faith especially at school and at work. That's where we really want to intimidate them as demons because that's where we're going to spend the majority of their lives. So let's neutralize them at work. And lastly, you get disciples to get off track by seeking idols, looking at other things, finding meaning and fulfillment through other things, anything but the Great Commission, anything but Jesus' mission. And P.S., in South Bay, the idols of pleasure and kids' activities and careers are particularly effective. So, we have a formidable enemy, don't we? But despite the challenges, you know, men are still Jesus' method. Men are still his method to deliver his message to the world. Jesus doesn't have a plan B. He still calls his disciples to make more disciples. That's absolutely necessary. Because Jesus was only one man with a three-year ministry on earth. He didn't convert everyone himself. He could have, but he didn't. And if you judge Jesus' ministry purely by numerics, it didn't look that successful. He had a few hundred people that were faithful at the end of his life. But to Jesus, numbers during his lifetime weren't the point. Instead, he focused on a few in order to reach many. And therein lies the genius of his plan. Because... Jesus' master plan began with making a small handful of committed disciples who would go out and make more disciples who would then go out and make more disciples. And as those disciples became disciples, they would be taught to obey everything that he commanded. And if every disciple engages in that great work of making disciples, of learning, and of teaching, Jesus knows he will easily reach the entire world. It's simple multiplication. Multiplication. But Jesus' plan breaks down if you don't share in his work. How you respond to his call, to his selection is of utmost importance. The stakes could not be higher because eternity is at stake for every soul on this planet. Do you still believe that? And I'll just be brutally honest here. I mean, I personally have wrestled with Jesus' call to make disciples over the years. As a new disciple in the late 1990s, I was part of our affiliate church out in the San Gabriel Valley. It's now called the Lighthouse Church. And as a young Christian, I was very active in trying to make disciples. In fact, in the year 2000, the elders in that church laid their hands on me and they sent me to Monrovia, you know, a small town just east of Pasadena where I live. They sent me and about 50 disciples to Monrovia on a mission team, go make disciples in Monrovia. And I lived there, we wanted to make disciples there, so... I was single at the time, and I was leading this mission team, I was working a full-time job, but unfortunately, what started as an exciting opportunity to make disciples on Monrovia, you know, really ended in a huge disappointment, because just a few months after we started the mission team, a new church leader came in, and he quickly disbanded the Monrovia mission team, before we even made one new disciple. And after that experience, I was really disillusioned, I was discouraged, I felt like a failure, In fact, I stopped actively sharing my faith after that. I was still going to church, but deep down, I had lost faith that God really wanted to use me in the strategy. And then in 2003, I got a promotion. I moved to Seattle. We became part of our affiliate church in Seattle, and I've told many of you this story before. Into Seattle, I would go to church on Sundays, but that was about it. I I was very wrapped up in my career and my family. I didn't really spend time with other disciples outside of church. Mia will tell you, I couldn't wait to get to the door Church was over. I was the first one out. I was waiting in the car. Um, But I eventually got tired of that. And this was years into it. I got tired of being on a desert island spiritually. I knew I needed to, to have relationships. I knew I needed a job where I wouldn't be traveling every week. I was traveling all over the place. And so I moved my family back to Los Angeles in 2011 and became part of South Bay Church. So, interesting, the guy that had a part in moving me back here is actually here today with us. My former boss, Bill Anderson, I want to embarrass him. He's the one that had me come back. He gave me a job in senior leadership in the company, and it's thanks to him. So if you don't want me here, blame him. He didn't know what he was doing at the time. The guy had a bigger plan. But I learned the hard way. I learned the hard way that I need relationships with other disciples that can help me grow. And when we arrived at South Bay, me and I had some emotional baggage when it came to discipling. We did. Some of you, like me, will remember a period in our church when... Discipling relationships could be manipulative, they could be controlling, and I was damaged from that. So I found myself resisting discipling at first. I mean, remember Eric Manji? Poor Eric, we were in his family group. And he tried to set up discipling relationships for Mia and me, and, and we started twitching with anxiety, you know, when he did this. And we just had memories of these hierarchical discipling relationships with D-trees and all these schematics. And Jesus, Eric even renamed it a, a Jesus circle so that we would feel better about it. But me and I pushed through our fears, and we started having friendships. We started developing friendships with other couples that could help us grow spiritually. And in fact, we found that our relationship with other disciples was absolutely indispensable in helping us in our marriage, with our parenting, and our walk with God. And we're grateful for so many of you. People like the Tumies and the Atkins, and the Wingies, and the Marichis, and the Johnsons, and the Blancos and the Sujimotos and the Jacksons, and so, so many of you that have helped us along the way. So we turn it around with discipling relationships. However, I've not been as consistent in Jesus' call to make disciples. And as I reflect on that, I, I really do believe that it's, it's sometimes because I'm not that consistent in having deep times with God. And, and times when I really come away transformed by prayer and, and by reading the word. And it's pretty simple. You know, When I'm having amazing times with Jesus and I'm close to him, I actually have something to share with other people. And when I'm not, I don't. And when I worked in the corporate world in particular, I'd have quiet times every morning. I would, check the box. But they'd become, root. They'd become routine and just, you know, rote. And I, would, I just wasn't coming away changed oftentimes. And, and so it's not surprising that I often didn't share my faith at work, I, I, even though I was spending, you know, 50, 60 hours a week there. And I'm sharing these things with you folks just so you know. We all go through periods where we're not living up to the call. We're not living up to what Jesus wants us to do. And in my experience, I drift from Jesus' call when I lose that daily connection with the Savior. And if I dare to use my own heart as a proxy for the church at large, I think we need to do some self-examination. I mean, some of you are on spot you're on fire spiritually, and that's awesome, and that's great. But but many of you like me may not always listen to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> when he calls you to a deeper relationship with Christ. Many of you, like me, may have had times when you feel like you're just going through the motions spiritually. You're not really having amazing times of connection with Jesus every day. You may feel like you're in a spiritual rut. Many of you, like me, may have been hurt by other disciples in the past, and and that's caused you to pull back from developing deeper relationships, deeper friendships in the church. Many of you, like me, at times may just feel overwhelmed by the circumstances of your life. Maybe you're thinking how crazy busy I am and I could never free up more time for Jesus and his mission. Maybe you, like me, can fill your life so full of idols that you've lost touch with the most important mission that we're on. And many of you, like me, may get discouraged. Maybe you've lost hope that Jesus wants to use you in his strategy. I know I'm not the only one that has these fears and these doubts. And I'm not trying to shame anyone here for feeling that way. But I am asking you to get some time alone with Jesus between now and the end of the year. Some extended time with Jesus. And examine your hearts. I appreciate my friend Bill. Bill and I got together yesterday. and We did the cross study about a week ago. And then Bill went out on a a 10-mile prayer walk on the Strand. He walked from Manhattan Beach to PV and back. That's what I'm talking about, okay? Not to walk 10 miles, but get some extended time with Jesus. And here are some questions I'd like you to ask yourself. Am I still deeply, madly, passionately in love? When have I felt the most in love with Jesus in my history as a disciple? And when can I, when was that? And how can I get back to that? How can I get back to that first love that I had for him? What scriptures will help me to fall in love with Jesus again? What scriptures can I memorize and meditate on that are going to help me with that? Do I still believe that there is one truth? Sorry, we're on to the next. What happened? shall we? Anyway, do I still believe that there is, there it is. Got to get through. So am I spending time with Jesus? So, I become more like him? Do I believe there's one truth that every single person on earth needs to understand and embrace? That the eternity of these people depends on that truth? Do I believe that the creator of the universe is calling me? And lastly, do I really feel like I'm having an eternal impact with my life? These are some deep questions, you know. And as you can probably tell, I've been wrestling with those questions myself. And I think self-reflection is important. But but I'm inspired by Paul in his life. And Paul in Philippians 3, he says, Philippians 3, verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Like Paul, I know for sure I have not arrived at the goal. I haven't even come close. But it is time to forget what is behind and strain towards what is ahead. I believe that. As we move into 2017, there's a lot at stake. And strategic plans are great You'll be hearing more about the exciting plans that we have for South Bay Church here in 2017 and over the next few weeks and months. But real change is going to start within each of you, in your own hearts. And personally, I mean, I've done the examination and I've decided that in 2017, I first of all need to remember who is calling me. The creator of the universe became a man and died for me. And that needs to set my heart on fire. I need to love Jesus with all of my heart and mind and soul and strength every single day, and that takes effort, but it's the greatest command. I need to remember what he's calling me to do. He's calling me to follow him, spend time with him every day. It means I'm spending time with disciples who will help me to grow spiritually. Discipling times need to be priority, even though that means means canceling other things. That means I'm spending time with people who are not yet disciples and demonstrating Jesus to them. Hospitality, building relationships, making the most of every opportunity that also means I'm going to be serious about our small group, our family groups. We divide up into family groups in our church. These are not just social clubs. These are places where people should experience the family of Jesus himself. And I need to think of my small group as the instrument for changing the world. Because it is. We need to think about it that way. And I finally need to remember that the stakes are high. I can't sit idly by. People need to hear the truth about Jesus salvation is only through him and only Jesus's plan is going to give my life real meaning and an eternal impact those are my decisions what are your decisions going to be for 2017 I'm going to close with the words of our dear brother um, Scott Green some of you may have heard of Scott before Um, he's not himself but he's he's actually one of my heroes in the faith he and his wife Lynn planted our church in Hong Kong in 1987 and they sent, sent off a lot of our underground churches into, into mainland China before they led the Seattle Church of Christ um, for 17 years. And for the last two years, they've served our church in Berlin, Germany. You know, a month ago, Scott learned that he has a brain tumor. And just listen to Scott's words in his blog that, that, that's posted on Disciples Today. Scott says, When the initial treatment is done, we hope and plan to return to our Berlin work and family. Perhaps God will give us the months and years needed to do so. Perhaps it will be a few years, or perhaps many. The truth is, for each of us, there will be a day when the time's up. Can we trust him enough on that day to let go of life, knowing by faith that more and better life is our inheritance? I've spent all my adult life talking about that promise. And I hope to live like a man who really believes it. I hope my spirit will be a testimony for people on the fence of the most important question they will ever ask. Should I and can I seek and find God? Like Scott, will you live like you really believe the promise? Do you believe it? The stakes are high. The stakes are eternal. Remember who is calling you. Come follow Jesus. Love you all. Enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.